church. How great is his love. Unfathomable. All right, I'm going to be reading from Matthew 16, 5 through 12. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they begin discussing among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourself the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets were gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets were gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Let's pray. God, we need you. We recognize uh, how great you are, how great your love is. We recognize how you're the one that gives us understanding. And so we ask that you would give us understanding into your word. That we may not be deceived by the enemy or even the flesh, but that we would be in step with your spirit just humble before you, confessing our need for you. God, would you help us to believe what you say is true about your son or about Jesus and, and also about your love for us, that we may walk in the freedom that you have already come to give us. Thank you for sending your son to save us. We confess that we need you for salvation and just to walk in this world, the troubles um, that we have, the distractions that are so many, the things that are pulling, even the good things that we want to do, we really just give all of those to you because we recognize that knowing your word and truth and hearing from you, you giving us this understanding is our, is our hope. We want you to be glorified, God. That's what we're doing here together. We're really just wanting to glorify you. God, we ask that you would increase our faith. Give us opportunities this Christmas to be a light for you, to proclaim your name to others. May we just be in step with your spirit and hearing from you and um, taking our eyes off of ourselves and constantly onto you. We just, we praise you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. How many of you guys love Christmas? Like the season, people are nice, things smell good, right? Peppermint milkshakes. I mean, there are just things about the Christmas season that kind of pull you into those things. And one of the things that I just love about Christmas is just the reminder of God himself coming to earth in humble circumstance. Right, coming in a way that he could truly experience life as, as we've experienced it and, and give us a guide and a, and a pathway to follow so that we can become more and more like his son. And so a lot has happened since last week. If you've been walking through Matthew with us, man, so many things have happened since the last time we were here. Last time we were here in the book of Matthew, we had this Canaanite woman who had approached Jesus and, and Jesus had healed her daughter who was demon-possessed. And, and since then, Jesus has been on a mission. 
right? Jesus is on a mission to accomplish victory over sin and death. That's why he came into the world, to become that sin for us so that we could be set free from sin and death. So, so he's on this mission, and we start seeing these cycles taking place in this book. Remember, he fed the 5,000, then remember he got into a boat, right? He fed the 4,000 since last week, and, and then he got into a boat, right? Um, we see him, um, the Pharisees come to him wanting a sign. Give us a sign. Show us. Like, did you not see that I fed 4,000 people? 5,000 people? I've been healing the, the sick and the mute and the demon-possessed, the blind or seen. Have you not seen? You need another sign? You need more than that? And he says, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the whale three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the grave three days and three nights. And then he gives him this teaching that Tara read for us, this teaching that says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware, because a little leaven ruins the whole batch, right? A little bit of leaven takes what was pure for the sacrifices, for the temple, for, for the Passover meal, the unleavened bread, all these things, but a little leaven ruins the whole dough. And we have to be careful because we live in a society that teaches things that are not of God's word. We live in a society that people want to hear what their itching ears want to hear. They don't always want to hear the truth. And so they look around for someone to just give them some, some words that are going to make them feel, oh, Christmas, right? Instead of giving them the truth. And so he says, beware of the leaven. Of course, I love the disciples. They don't get it at first. They're like, bread? He's like, Did you? I kid it. kids lunched, fed 5,000 people. Like, I, I'm good. I don't need more bread, right? What I'm talking about is these teachings that seep in. And so Jesus is on this pattern, right, a miraculous sign, and then he gets away, right? And then the, the Pharisees come test him. They keep asking questions, and then, of course, Jesus keeps putting them down. They keep failing, and then Jesus retreats to teach the disciples something new, something deeper that they need to know before the next phase of ministry. And that's what we're going to pick up today. We're going to pick up as Jesus is pulling the disciples and say, hey, come with me to this place because I want to teach you something I'm going to teach you something that you're going to need to know to spread the gospel message around. And so we're going to dive into that together. So let's pick up in verse 13, right where Tara left off. It says, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? So he's taken them away. Now listen, have you ever been in a place where someone's like, Hey, I need to talk to you for a second. Let's, let's go get on the boat. And you're like, why are we getting on the boat, right? Like he, he, there's something about going to this place that's going to teach a lesson, right? He's specifically going. Now, Caesarea Philippi is 30 miles northeast of Capernaum, of the Sea of Galilee, where, which has been base camp. So this is a two-day journey that they're going to this specific place. Now, let's talk about Caesarea Philippi, right? Caesarea Philippi was originally named by the Greeks after the god Pan, right? Now, maybe have you heard of Pan before? Right? The god Pan, right? And it was initially named Panus after him, right? This is Pan, right? Half goat, half god that's there. And so we're going to get to him in a second. But Caesarea Philippi was originally named after him. But then in 2 BC, Herod Philip. Do you remember the map we kept showing about all the different Herods a while back, right? You notice that up in that green kind of section, the capital is Caesarea Philippi. So King Herod 
Philip, that, that son of Herod the Great, he went up there and he's like, I'm going to rename this city to honor the Caesar and to honor myself. Okay? So I'm going to name it Caesarea Philippi, named after me, right? So he renames the city, it becomes the capital city, and all of a sudden it turns into Sin City. Because when you think of the word pan, what sort of words come to mind? Panic. Pandemonium, right? All because the god Pan was the god of the wild, the god of the fields, the gods of the shepherds, right? This was who Pan was. In fact, you might have met his son Peter. You think I'm joking, but Peter Pan was the son of Pan and a woman. He played the flutes. He was the, the untamable right, god of the wild in that case. And so that, maybe you've watched Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and Mr. Tumnus, right, with playing the flutes in there, right? This was based upon the god Pan. Now, the god Pan was wild, Right, the god of partying, and they would worship goats in this particular um, sign of worship. And their idea of worship, right, was 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 disgusting. It was full level of debauchery and depravity. Right, that part of their idea of worship was to get into um, relations, code word, um, with goats. That was part of their worship, quote unquote, worship experience. Right? Then, as part of their worship experience, they would take one of the goats and they would sacrifice that goat. Now, I had a chance to visit the ancient site of Caesarea Philippi when I was in Israel this last summer. I want to show you a couple pictures. So this is Mount Hermon, right, which is in the land of Bashan, where, where Og of Bashan came from. Right? This is um, a place of the serpent, right? So this was not like um, a mountain. This is where the transfiguration, some people think happened, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. Um, but at the base of that mountain is Caesarea Philippi. And as you're hiking up to Caesarea Philippi, it's beautiful. There's like this river flowing because out of this area, it's one of the three kind of springs for the Jordan River, right? So this is just a beautiful area walking up. And then you step out of the forest and there's this huge red rock and this huge opening, Right, this opening is originally where the water would flow out from Mount Hermon. This is where the spring was located, and this was what people considered the gates of hell. This was the gates of Hades, or this was the entry point to the netherland, right? That people could go into the spirit underworld through this particular arena. So the water would flow out of here, and they would sacrifice a goat, and they would throw it into the river. And if the backflow took it under the mountain, that meant that the gods accepted their worship. If it didn't sink and it floated down the river, then they would have to sacrifice something greater. So they would begin to sacrifice their children until one of them would be pulled back into the mountain, never to be seen again. And then the god Pan would be pleased with their sacrifice. Ultimate level of depravity. That they're willing to take this false god, little g-god, right, and sacrifice the things that are most precious to them to this God to try to get favor from him. This is where Jesus takes the disciples. He's like, hey, I want you to come see a city. Here's a temple. In fact, if you go there today, right to the right of this opening, you would see still carved into the rock these grottos, right? This is where they would do the sacrifices in this grotto. Above it, they would have an image of Pan for people to fall down and worship before. That even today, there still are these grottos showing the idolatry that was there in this particular place. And Jesus pulls the disciples and says, I want to take you to a place 
And I want to ask you a question in this place. So imagine you're in this scene of debauchery all around you. Horrible pagan sacrifices and pagan rituals that are happening in temples and all around. And here's Jesus' question for them. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say the Son of Man is? Remember, the Son of Man is from the book of Daniel, right? It's just this prophetic term for the coming Messiah. Who do people say the Son of Man is? If I were to ask you this, who do people in the world say that Jesus is? Good moral teacher. He's a good example. He's a good man. Some people would say he didn't even exist. That's silly. I mean, obviously history says that he existed. People outside the Bible all say obviously he existed. Who would they say that Jesus is? And so then the disciples give him multiple choice. I know it's kind of finals week for a lot of people, right? Here's your multiple choice list, right? Here's what the people say about Jesus. A, that he's John the Baptist. Like, what? John the Baptist? Now, this was kind of Herod's view. Remember back in chapter 14? Herod was freaking out because um, he had beheaded John. He's like, maybe he's, this is John, like, brought back to life, right? But we know this isn't John the Baptist because John and Jesus lived at the same time. Remember the baptism? Remember when John's going, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? He wasn't like, behold the Lamb of God, right? He, he wasn't looking at himself, right? He was pointing to Jesus. But we have a tendency to compare to the here and the now, don't we? If something happens in our life, we have a hard time looking back more than yesterday or last week to judge that particular thing. Comparison is a difficult thing, right? Robs you of your joy. Anybody ever struggle with a comparison? I mean, think about Christmas, right? Think about kids. When you're Christmas, right? When you're at Christmas, you come down and you see a tree and you're like, oh, I got a gift. And you look over and your brother or sister has a huge box. You're like, oh. I want a huge box, right? It might have a pillow in it. One year, we gave our son, Kale, a mattress. It was in this box. You know how they vacuum seal it and it's all squished together, right? It was in this huge box, and he was so excited. <laughs> then he got a mattress, right? And like, uh, okay. He wasn't old enough to be like, yes, mattress. Anybody? Socks. Yes. <laughs> Belt. Yes, right? Anybody in that stage where you're old enough to be like, you've gotten past the like fun gifts, now you're just kind of in the like practical stuff that you don't want to buy for yourself, right? But someone else will buy it for you, right? So, but he had this huge box and it was like, I want the big box. I mean, they got things in little boxes that were way more expensive, but yet, ooh, shiny, right? We have this tendency in our life to compare to the things that are around us. Oh, how's this going? How's this? Instead, we need to stop. We've actually lost this sense in our world of being a part of something bigger than ourselves. Our world has come to this point where we've shrunk back until it's really all just become about us looking in a mirror or us taking a selfie. And, oh, I don't like that one. Oh, they, they, I might, yeah, let me try it again. Filter, right? We've turned into where everything has reduced to how the world affects me, how I feel, how I look how I sound, how many people have liked the thing that I, we, we have pulled ourselves instead of stepping out and going, man, we're a part of something greater than ourselves. Night in Bethlehem reminds us of that. There's no way we could do Night in Bethlehem with just our staff. It's crazy. We ha you guys are amazing. 
I don't even know half the stuff that happened at night in Bethlehem, but I heard it was awesome, right? Because, man, it takes the church as a body functioning together to do everything as well. You realize that we're a part of something greater, which is the body of Christ. We've lost it in our world. We've lost our identity, and it's turned into just us. But what does James say? Man, we're like a man who looks in the mirror, and when he leaves, he forgets what he looks like. We, we have to look around and see how do I fit in. Because think about it. The greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what's the second one? Love yourself more than you love others. Wait, that's not right. But isn't that the mantra of the world? Isn't that the leaven that the world says you should believe? Ow. Don't care. About, just care about you. Just take care of you. You do you, boo. Right? That, that's what the world says, right? David. And Don't think about anybody else. Just think about you, right? That's what the world is saying. But yet, what does Jesus say? It's greater to think of others. Now, when I think about Jared and his life and the things that he's involved in, that that makes me love him more. I start finding out that when I start loving other people, like, Anthony, man, how can I serve you? How can I love you? That I found out that I love Jesus more when I love others to stop thinking about myself. You see, when I only think about myself before the mirror, don't you just start seeing all those flaws? Like, ooh, I'm misshaving a spot right there. I, oh, like, what is that doing there? Oh, yeah. Wow, I'm looking old. I, I need to dye those gray hair, right? You start, we start thinking these things when we start saying ourselves instead of looking out, seeing other people the way that God sees them. This is how God wants us to live. Not focus on us. Focus on loving others. Christmas is such a great time to remind us of that. Man, I wish we'd have Christmas all year long. We think of other people before we think of ourselves. So, who are we? All right, are we? Is Jesus John the Baptist? Is he the here and the now, the hot new thing, the prophet? No, that's answer choice A. Answer choice B. Maybe he's Elijah. I'm like, well, why Elijah? Because Elijah was this prophet of miracles, right? Mount Carmel, fire. <laughs> Have you read like First Kings 17 and 18? Man, that is like an action movie, right? I mean, he, he's back there, okay, it's not going to rain for three years. The rain dries up, right? He goes to Zarephath, this widow, and, hey, can I have some bread? She's like, all I have left is one thing, but I'll make it for you anyway. And then he's like, oh, may your flour and your oil never run out. And it never runs out. And then her son dies, and here comes Elijah, right? And, and he, he spreads himself. In fact, let's read it. Let's go back to 1 Kings, right? Awesome story, okay? Where did you go? There you go. All right, 1 Kings. Look what it says in verse 21. Zarephath's son has died, and then he, Elijah, stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. Woo! Doesn't that remind you of Jesus? When he went to Jairus' house and his daughter had died, and remember they laughed at him and he sent him out, rise up and walk. So they're going, maybe this is Elijah, right? He's giving them bread, feeding the 5,000, just like Zarephath. They healed the son, the daughter, just like Zarephath's son. Healed them. Maybe this is Elijah. That's return. I know we're supposed to be looking for him. One that comes like Elijah. We're supposed to be looking for this prophet, so that's answer choice B. Was Jesus Elijah returned? Or maybe C, Jeremiah. And for us, we're like, Jeremiah? That seems like a random prophet. 
because we're not um, into the Jewish culture. We're not immersed in it like they were. Jeremiah was the most like Moses of all of the prophets. Because remember, back in uh, Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, there's going to be one that comes like me. A prophet like me is going to come. And here's Jeremiah. His ministry was 40 years long, kind of like Moses' last 40 years were with the people. The people reviled him, but God just kept affirming him with miraculous, cool things. In fact, if you look at um, Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, right, it says this. It says, this is Moses again speaking about this prophet to come. And he says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words into his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And then you fast forward to Jeremiah chapter 1. And in verse 9, there's almost an exact quote of this phrase. Look what it says, Jeremiah 1 verse 9. Okay, It says, Then the Lord put out his hand, and he touched my mouth. And the Lord said, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. So those reading the text are like, Jeremiah? He's the Moses to come. But yet, Jeremiah was prophesying about the coming of Babylon. Babylon was going to come in and, and crush them. Moses was the one who set them free. Right? In the slavery of Egypt, Moses, through the power of God and, and miracles, set them free. And now Jesus comes with the power over sin and death. And the, the yoke of sin that was upon us is now we're going to be set free in him. Jesus was that promised prophet. But they kept looking. Maybe it's Elijah. Maybe it's Jeremiah. Maybe it's one of the other prophets. That's answer choice D. And then Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? Notice how he turns it personal. Yeah, I know what the world says. I know what everybody out there says about Jesus. What do you say? What do you say about Jesus? If I were to ask you, who's Jesus? A, B, C, D, well, Peter goes E, none of the above, okay? He's like, no, no, you are the Christ. Look at Simon's answer in verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Woo, that's the answer, right? Who is Jesus? He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He deserves to be Lord of our life, right? We follow him. He doesn't follow us. He doesn't tag along on our trips to what we do. We follow him and his leading in our lives, right? He is the Christ. So I've asked you, uh, what role does Jesus play in your life? Is he Lord of your life? If Jesus said, I want you to do this, are you like, yes, sir, let's go. I'm there. How are you willing to be led by Jesus? So Peter's answer, the perfect confession, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. We don't have time to get in this. Maybe we'll another time. Was he related to Jonah, the in the fish three days kind of guy? Acts chapter 10, interesting parallel. We'll do that another time. All right. Anyway, just plant that seed. Maybe you have fun studying that one later. All right. Um, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Peter has heard this from the Lord. The Father has given him this message to proclaim, you are the Christ. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. All right. Man, there's tons of debate on this verse. Let's just jump into it, right? Peter, Petros, means what? Anybody know? 
means rock. Okay, now there's three words for rock that are used biblically in the New Testament, right? First one is petros, which means a rock or a pebble. Isn't that a cute name? Like, oh, a little pebble, right? That's petros. That's Peter. Peter is technically a rock, the rock, but he's like the pebble, right? And then there's the second word that we see here is on this rock. This is the cornerstone, the foundation rock, that when they would build a house, the first stone would be what they have to set, and everything is based upon the lines of that stone. That's the cornerstone. The third one was a stumbling block, that you leave that rock out there, and in the dark, whoop, trip, fall, stumbling block, right? So we have three words, petros, pebble, right, cornerstone, rock, and then stumbling block. We're going to see all three of those in our story today, right? So here he is, Peter, right? You, on this rock, I will build my church. So here's the debate. Is Peter the rock? Or is Peter's confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, is that the rock by which the church is built on? Here's the two debates, right? If Peter's the rock, then the church is built upon Peter. Peter was awesome. Remember Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost, right? That first sermon, 5,000, the church was born, from Peter's sermon on Pentecost. Even in Acts chapter 10, Peter brings the gospel to the Gentiles in that, that story, right? So we have Peter, this, this awesome role model in the church. Is he the rock that everything should be built upon Peter? Or is Jesus Christ the rock? And what you say about Jesus, whether you confess him as the Christ, the Son of the living God, that is the cornerstone of the church. I would say Peter's not the rock, that Jesus Christ is the rock. You know who else would say that Jesus Christ is the rock? Peter. When you look at Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he's quoting from the book of Isaiah, and he says that Jesus is the cornerstone, the rock that the builders rejected. This is Jesus, or go to Ephesians chapter 2. We could go to hundreds of places, but Ephesians chapter 2 says it this way. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Right, Paul, writing to the Ephesian church, goes, Jesus Christ is a cornerstone. Go to 1 Corinthians 3. Go to lots of different places where Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. And so as we look at these verses, we don't want to get confused, right? Peter is not the rock. We're going to find out why here in just a second, okay? Let's keep going in this story. So it says... Um, I will build, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So I can imagine, right, Caesarea Philippi, there's that huge rock, and he's like, and the gates of hell, gates of Hades, the enemy, the destroyer, the accuser, the devil, has nothing on this message. He has no more power after the cross. Oh, death, where's your sting? Sin has no more victory because of what Christ did on the cross. It says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This word prevail is like a catastrophe running our way. The flood comes, the, the waters rise, but the house built on the rock will stand. 
Nothing will knock it down. And you see these beautiful levels of this story saying, like, even the gates of hell cannot prevail against the gospel message going out into all the world. And then he says this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This is why you see Peter at the pearly gates, right, in, in all the different pictures and artistic form. What are these keys that he's giving, right? He's giving out these ideas, these rules, these particular ways to live your life that Peter is going to push into the life of the church. Because look what he says. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, this is not a Spider-Man verse. You know what I mean, right? They're like, oh, I got to bind him, right? And they're like, bind you in the name of Jesus, right? And I, right? And they're all this stuff, oh, I got to loose you, pulls it back, right? This is not what he's talking about. He's not talking about us binding people or setting people free. Whose job is that? That's the Spirit's job. That's, that's Jesus' job to set people free, right? And when you begin to look at these terms, um, they become legal terms. When you look at the context of what's going on, what you bind are the things that you forbid, the things that you say are unlawful to live by, Right? This is this idea of binding. Right, This idea of loosing is this idea of permitting. These are legal terms. In fact, you see this in Matthew chapter 18. If you fast forward, Matthew 18, verse 18, has an almost exact quote of these verses. All right? Look what it says. It says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And this is in the context of church discipline. It's in the context of a time where a brother has sinned against you and you go to him, your friends go to him, the elders go to him, and he still won't give up on his sin. He still says that evil is good. And he's still trying to live by it. And you're like, no, I'm not going to permit that. We're not going to let you live out that way and destroy the church from the inside. And you bring him before the church and you treat him as an unbeliever, as a tax collector. And so we see this kind of in this context of teaching this idea of binding and loosing, that what you permit into the church can destroy the church if you're not careful. And we have to be careful not to let the leaven of the world seep in to the church. What is the church built upon? The rock, Jesus Christ, and the revelation of God through his holy scriptures. And this is truth, and what God says is true. This is what the church is built upon. It's not built upon a man. It can't be built upon Peter. A church can't be built upon a preacher or, or a worship pastor. Or it can't be built on those things. It's got to be built on Jesus Christ. This is what he's saying. This is why we know that Peter is not the rock. We'll keep going and we'll see that come out even more. Look at verse 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This teaching was for them specifically because he's fixing to unload on them the plan, the mission that's there, like imagine Mission Impossible, like this mystery will be destroyed in five minutes, right? Whatever, 10 seconds. I, I forgot the movie quote, but um, here's the message, right? Here's what he says. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So he's like, here's the plan. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. And for the joy that's set before me, I'm going to endure the cross, despising its shame, so you can be free from your sin. But here's the problem. These, these new disciples, right, especially Peter, 
right, the pebble, right, he stuck in an old mentality. I've been reading a book called Rest and War by Ben Stewart, and he had this quote in there that I thought was just so awesome, right, is that they have a new reality, but they're stuck in an old mentality. The new reality is that Jesus Christ is fixing to go to die. That, that's the mission. This is what we're going to do. We're going to start marching towards Jerusalem, and when I get there, they're going to kill me. But on, after three days... I'm going to rise again. This is the message, right? But this old mentality is like, no, no. We, we don't want to see that. Now, remember, this is the same message that was given to those guys walking on the walk to Emmaus. Remember that story from last week? They're walking on the walk to Emmaus, and when they find out, when he breaks the bread, they're like, that was Jesus. There was a burning. And what do they do? They run seven miles back to Jerusalem to tell everybody else about it, right? What is Peter's reaction here? Where Christ says, I'm going to have to go and die. Look at Peter's reaction. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. <laughs> the rock, right? Peter, right? Jesus is telling him what's going to happen. He's like, no. No, Jesus, that's not going to happen. It's like the pebble starts rolling and it hits the real rock. You're like, oh, cute little pebble, you know, trying to rebuke me. Yeah, and looks around, and the book of Mark says that the disciples are standing around, and they heard Peter's rebuke, and Jesus pushes back, and look what he says. And he turned, and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Woo, talk about a fall. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Get behind me, Satan. Like, whoa. That's, we know he's not the rock, right, in this thing. But he says this. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. When you look up this word hindrance, you know what that word is? Stumbling block. You went from being a pebble to now you're a stumbling block. Why? You are, you are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's looking through the lens of his life. You're supposed to be one that makes it all new. You're supposed to be the one that puts Israel on the throne. And this even has echoes. You remember in the garden? How does Peter react after he's betrayed? Right? Cut off the ear. Right? Jesus is like, dude, chill. Like, put that back on real quick. Right? You don't think I could call a myriad of angels? You don't think that I could protect myself? I'm the son of God. I'm, I'm the ruler of the universe. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. You, you don't think that this is me. I'm laying down my life of my own choosing. Right, this is Jesus. Peter stuck in this old mentality, getting in the way. And how many times are we stuck in an old mentality? You, we're free. You believe that, right? You're a new creation. The sins that you have committed and the sins that you will commit, they're paid for. Paid in full by Jesus Christ on the cross. Amen? You, you got that? Why do we still have guilt and shame? Why do we, when we're, we're at Christmas, right, and we're like, I want to live better, or New Year's, we make a resolution, why do we try to punish ourselves to motivate ourselves to do something instead of letting love be the motivator? Why do we let guilt for things that happened in our past haunt us? Why? Because we have an old mentality. You're a new creation in Christ. It's for freedom you've been set free. Live free. Your sin has no power over you anymore. It's been broken by Jesus Christ. When you say in your heart, Jesus Christ is Lord, when you put your faith in him alone, when you make the good confession like Peter makes, the sin no longer has power over us. 
we now can be led by the Spirit of God. That's true freedom. Man, don't walk in regret. Don't walk in pain and, and suffering this Christmas season. Walk in the freedom that comes from knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I'm going to close with these verses out of uh, Colossians chapter 3. It's one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. Because what he says is that Peter is getting caught up thinking on things that are of the earth and not thinking on things above. And here's this quote out of Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, that this baby in the manger was going to live a life that now he's seated at the right hand of God. This is Jesus. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. I love that. Is Christ your life? Like he is the source. He's how you recharge. He's the the energy that you have all comes from your relationship with Christ. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Here's what Jesus says. Hey, put these things to rest. These things that are tied and entangled around your feet, step out of them. Get free. All right, here's what he says. Um, Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. These are the things that surround us. Covetedness, sexual immorality. And he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you're living in them. But now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, obscene talk that comes from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Do you realize that? You're chosen by God. You've been adopted in his family. You are holy. You are beloved by God. And he says, Put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. You want to give yourself a present for Christmas? Give yourself forgiveness. It's so freeing. It's so freeing to not keep a record of wrong with all the people that have hurt you that are around you. Listen, if you want to keep a a naughty list, you can keep it. Everybody around you at some point will hurt you. And you can keep a record of that if you want to, but it's miserable. Instead, forgive as Christ has forgiven you. Aren't we so glad Christ doesn't keep a record of our wrongs? Aren't we so glad that he has wiped the slate clean? And every time we step into it again, he makes us white as snow. Right? Oh, what an incredible Savior we have. Oh, that we could be like him and forgive others. Then he says this, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that this Christmas season we will be like your son. Lord, thank you for loving us and choosing us. Lord, help us to live with kindness, patience, love. Lord, help us to be thankful this Christmas season. Lord, as we look around, not coveting the people's, other people's things, Lord, but that we'll be thankful. Lord, I pray that the peace of God will transcend understanding. Lord, that the word of God will dwell richly in our hearts. Lord, we just pray that this Christmas season we'll be able to seek you. And Lord, thank you that Peter gave the good confession. Lord, I pray that each person in this room will make the good confession, that they will say, there is no other. There is no other Lord of my life except for you, Jesus. You are the Son of God. You are the Savior. So Lord, help us this Christmas season to remember what an incredible gift it is that you came in the flesh to set us free. Lord, you are such a good God. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Hey, church, we are so thankful and glad that you chose to worship with us today. Um, And we just want to remind you of a couple of things that we have going on next week and the weeks to come um, as we enter into the Christmas season. Next week is Christmas Eve. Uh, We will not be having evening services next Sunday. We will not be having Christmas Eve evening services next Sunday. We will have Christmas Eve morning services, though, just like we're having today. So at 8.30, 10 o'clock, and 11.30, we will be here. We will be worshiping. It will be a candlelight service, um, and it will also be a family service. And so be prepared to have your children in here with you, like your whole family is going to be here. We're going to have some worship. We're going to take communion. And so just be preparing for that. Prepare your heart to to share in communion and to have, have that time where we reflect on everything Jesus did um, that started with him being born here on this earth. And so uh, be ready for that, just so you guys are aware. And this coming Tuesday and Wednesday for the next two weeks, we won't be having kids or youth ministry. And so students, kids, we won't be meeting for the next couple weeks. Spend that time with your family. Parents, be prepared to not have your Tuesday and Wednesday evenings. You're going to have your kids. It's going to be really good, though, as we kind of have these two weeks to rest and celebrate Christmas. But church, we're glad you joined us today. Um, And we want to close with this verse out of Luke chapter 2. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Church, he is the Christ. I pray that you would know that this week as you go out and you love people well. You're dismissed.